Welcome to the Riverdale Writers Room, a fan-made podcast where two girlfriends compete head-to-head to predict the series finale of Riverdale before it airs. Together, we will embark on a three-phase journey wherein we'll rewatch the series, write our own version of season seven, and then compare our own creations to the real deal. Is Riverdale truly unpredictably campy, or can we successfully hack into the psyche of the writers? Join us as we try to conjure the spirits within the real Riverdale Writers Room. There is no single way to tell a story. You're each to write your own version of the ending. In whatever style you choose. Best story wins. Challenge accepted. Welcome to the Riverdale Writers Room. This is Katie. This is Chantal. And we're girlfriends. And we both have COVID. We are in our COVID era. We are ill in all of the ways. <laughs> ill as in cool and also ill as in sick. Yes, <laughs> both <laughs> ways, I suppose. And mentally. Mm. I think you have to be a little bit mentally ill to go this deeply into Riverdale. <laughs> You're probably right, but I feel like Riverdale is for the people with good taste. I agree. I love that video. Is it just Lily and Madeline? And they're just like, shut the fuck up respectfully (laughs) about people who don't like Riverdale or like, that's just still going. It's like they have one joke about Riverdale Mm -hmm. and none of them have even seen it. They just see a meme. Yeah. And they're like, what the fuck? People need to give it a fair chance, is what I'm saying. I think especially queer people. I, I know so many queer people who hate on Riverdale because they're like, ugh, it's so straight and so boring. And like, what is even going on half the time? The showrunner is literally gay. Half the characters are literally gay. It's such a queer show. It's such a queer show. It's so camp. It's so camp. It is defining a generation truly and people are going to watch this back and there's going to be a cult following Mm -hmm. i have no doubt about that i agree i know somebody who does like a burlesque show for um twin peaks and it's like a big burlesque drag performance that happens annually and it's been going on for at least a decade and it's a big production and i have no doubt in my mind that Riverdale is going to be the equivalent of that. Riverdale is going to be like a Twin Peaks moment when we're like in our 40s and people are going to be doing drag performances to like the funniest monologues. Truly, we will be doing Riverdale burlesque in the future. And honestly, I feel like I should know more about film when I'm watching this show. I feel like there are so many film references I'm not getting. There's just so much that's going over my head because when I do notice things from films I have seen, it's really subtle sometimes. We've kind of, especially in season four and a little bit at the end of season three, transitioned from just making references through the characters about things to actually having visual references to having entire episode referencing movies entire plot points too like archie being in prison was very shawshank redemption you mean shankshaw <laughs> he was literally <laughs> there was literally shankshaw prison exactly i mean and even in this season there's an entire episode dedicated to a specific director lynchian 
David Lynch, there were references that would have totally gotten over my head before we even watched Twin Peaks or anything. Like the fact that the video store later in season four is called Blue Velvet and that there's the Scarlet Suite in the back where people can find the more illicit videos. Yeah, it's a reference to the Red Room. Exactly. From Twin Peaks. And even the character type who runs the desk is very uh, Agent Cooper. Very Lynchian himself. Yeah. And when I think about it, a lot of the dialogue in Riverdale is pretty Lynchian. Mm-hmm. Do you have an example? Off the top of my head? Um, damn. I feel like my head is full of things, and then I hit record, and it simply spills out. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. You know, we'll get to so many other references and... We probably will skip a lot of them because they probably went over our head. So I, I have some things to say about references this season, though. Please. As well. Yeah. So in episode two, Reggie destroys his dad's car. And to me, this was very Cameron from Ferris Bueller. Um, and it's a little bit different in the sense that Cameron's not doing it with a baseball bat. And he only puts one dent in it. And then accidentally, it falls out of the building and gets totaled. <laughs> <laughs> More Um, comedy than drama. Yeah, and it has more symbolism in Ferris Bueller because throughout the entire movie, he's very protective of this car. So to destroy it like that at the end is more representative, more tied to the relationship with his father than Reggie. Well, I feel like Reggie's destroying his dad's car was very symbolic because his dad owns the dealership and like to him his cars represent his empire everything that he's built and like the image that he's built specifically and his abuse of reggie doesn't really fit into that image so reggie's just putting abuse on the car the way his dad has put abuse on him to like level out the images it feels symbolic too some other things I noticed, and I don't know why this one took me a while. The blue and gold room looks like the torch room from Smallville. The torch is their school newspaper. Mm. And in the torch newsroom, they have a wall of weird, which is just like the murder board in the blue and gold. Do they call it the murder board? They do call it the murder board. Yes, it's basically the same thing. Interesting. And I even included a photo. For you? Side-by-side comparison. Down to the floor. Down to the fucking floor. (laughs) Well, they're from the same network. They are from the same network. Do they both film in Canada? I don't know. Um, Smallville is pretty old, so I don't know how much of the set could have been reused exactly. Mm. I think it's at least inspiration. We know that our showrunner loves a superhero. Mm Mm-hmm. I feel like it's possible that even if a lot of the like guts of the set were changed and like redressed, they probably have a general classroom type set that they just redress for whatever show is filming at the time. So even if it's, it, it could be the same room that Smallville used. It's probably gone through many iterations, you know? Yes. I also have that. Sorry, do you want to say something? Um, it was just a jump back to Reggie's dad's car. Okay. Um, I know you pointed it out initially. There is like a little Easter egg with his license plate um, being magnificent. Um, it says like Ma- M-G-N-F-C-N-T, like magnificent, like mantle to magnificent. Um, so that's just a little Easter egg. Um, 
And then later, another dad's car gets wrecked. Um, and it's Hiram. His car gets wrecked. Um, <laughs> and his license plate is a capital H, lowercase i, capital Ram. Hi, Ram. <laughs> I just thought it was really funny. Veronica leaving or dump. Veronica dumping an entire bottle of her rum into her dad's car was almost a KO moment for me, for sure. I remember that really sticking out to me. I was like, that's not normally her style. She's normally more clever and cutthroat and not just petty. There's one more reference that I would like to talk about. It's the Dead Poet Society, mm-hmm. which I feel like was very Quill strong. Skull. Yeah, the Quill and Skull, the Secret Society, the boarding school of it all. It felt very strongly referenced, and the meeting in the woods with the with the skull in their hand to recite poetry. Yeah, yes. Jughead even said, "This is so Dead Poet Society." When he arrived, mm-hmm. so I thought that was funny to have it both be a literal reference Jughead makes and also a general reference, just in vibe. Yeah, it's obviously a lot darker what ends up happening. <laughs> At Stonewall Prep, but you're right. I think it is very much a literal and also vibe kind of reference. I like when they do stuff like that. Like with season three and the Breakfast Club, Midnight Club mm-hmm. type of thematic episode reference. Yeah. Um, would you like to start us off on a character? There's a specific scene with Jughead that I have a note that I wanted to discuss because to me it was very much a moment where Jughead is doing some deep dive analysis the way that you and I are doing about the show. He has a lot of those moments in the series but there was one this season that specifically stood out to me and he's doing the research on the Baxter brothers. Um, It's one of the first times he has the idea maybe the first book was written by someone other than Mr. DuPont and he tells Betty the first Baxter Brothers book is unlike any of the others and then he goes on to talk about how it's different how it has political commentary war darker themes the boys have jobs and they're like going through more like real life sort of things the characters are more fleshed out they're not franchised yet they're written with more depth than that So that made me wonder, like, is that supposed to be some sort of call to compare the first season to the rest of the seasons of the show? Is it just something that happens within the books? The first season was very different than season two, three, and four. I thought the exact same thing when he was talking about the first book being completely different than the rest. I thought it was self-referential to season one compared to the rest, for sure. I also think it's funny that we find ourselves relating to Jughead in this way, doing Mm -hmm. his deep dive and his writing, because I believe that Jughead is sort of a self-right for some of the writers, at least. For sure. He is a writer himself. He, later in season six, is writing the story that's happening in a different parallel universe, like the writers are literally doing. Mm Mm-hmm. You have the Jughead in the bunker that's writing the infinite stories for Rivervale, right? Yeah, the Jughead in the bunker that's keeping Rivervale afloat. 
Like, you're telling me the writers don't feel like they're in the bunker writing all of these parallel universes and stuff? It's I'm def- sure they do. It's definitely just, like, a self-write-in. He's also the narrator almost 100% of the time. Exactly. So there are moments in season one and other parts where narration gets taken over by another character, like Betty when she is doing her get out of the facility with the Gargoyle King shit. Like, she narrates a little bit then. And... You also pointed out in chapter 59, which I think is the first episode, no, the second episode of the season, Jughead is literally in two places at once. Yes. Okay, so the second episode of season four, right at the beginning, right? Yeah. We have Jughead at the counter at Pops typing, writing, and you also have him looking back at a booth at himself sitting with Betty, Archie, and Veronica. And they make eye contact with each other. And presumably this is a memory, but something about it feels like an Easter egg. It's interesting that you say it feels like a memory because to me it felt more like a visual metaphor where he's like physically present in the booth, but he can see himself in his mind wandering like slightly away from the circumstance, thinking about how he's going to remember the moment thinking about how he's going to write about it. It doesn't feel to me like he is remembering when he was sitting in that booth because I think the booth is present. And I think him sitting at the counter is supposed to be like a visual metaphor, but it's interesting that you think of it as a memory. Yeah, I guess it could be viewed either way. Because if it is a memory, then that plays, that brings an element of time and space into it. Because nobody else is reacting to him. But Pop is literally like serving him more coffee when he makes eye contact with his past self. Is it a past self? Is it an alternate self? But why isn't anybody reacting at the two Jugheads? A couple of moments with Jughead this season, and especially that whole monologue where he was coming out of the bunker, being like, the thing about pretending to be dead is you start to feel dead. And like, being in the bunker, you lose a sense of time and space and reality It kind of all just melts away and you're just in there with your mind. Is the bunker his mind palace? It kind of is, right? There is a Jughead in some alternate universe that's locked in there permanently. Yeah. And also, this got me thinking, what's the bathroom situation in the bunker? Is it like a shit in the bucket type of thing? (laughs) Is there a bathroom? I've been thinking about this for weeks and... I would just like an answer from someone. Because <laughs> if it's a shit in the bucket situation, Jughead has to leave the bunker to like dump it out, right? Either that or he has to have a maid coming to empty his chamber pot. <laughs> and what about Penelope Blossom being handcuffed to the bed there? What was her situation? How You're did, right. How did she get out of there? How did, how she, did she go? Well, I know how she got out of there. Well, but- yeah, we know how she got out. But how does she go to the bathroom? This feels like semantics, but also, but you know what? It's not semantics because Dilton Doily was a hardcore survivalist in Jughead's own words as he repeated several times because the writers really wanted to drill into our brains. He's a hardcore survivalist. I feel like he built that bunker for like nuclear fallout or for some shit, zombie apocalypse survival like he was not gonna like see the light of day ever again he was gonna survive the rest of his life down there he has to have had a bathroom plan you know okay i'm on a website for fallout shelter toilets (laughs) (laughs) it looks like it would be a chemical or a compost toilet 
So I don't know what the maintenance required for that is, but I guess it's a step up from shit in a bucket. Okay. I feel like Dilton at least figured out how to dig. Maybe he like dug an underground outhouse. Maybe it's like connected to a well because presumably he also has water, right? Yeah, hopefully not his shit water though. (laughs) (laughs) Presumably he has water, at least a bunch of it stored. I think he has at least like a three-month supply of food and water down there, at the very least. Because we also see Jughead down there eating canned beans, as if Betty's not bringing him pops every day. Anyway, maybe we did get a little into the semantics of it all. While we're on the semantics of it, another thing I really felt zeroed in on this time around the season, aside from Jughead being like, a stand-in for the writers like he is like their window into the world he's also very much stoner coded he's literally a stony now he literally is a stony he's always hungry like i don't know if you noticed but in the memorial episode when they're at the diner in the town where they went to go get fred's body he's the only one who ate his entire plate of food no one else touched any of their food. They all have full plates and Jughead's plate is empty with like smeared ketchup on it. Always hungry, even if he's depressed. He carries a Zippo lighter. He was put, he was locked into a coffin with nothing but his personal effects. Like he, they took away his phone. They dug through his pockets and took away his phone and anything else that like could help him get out of there. But somehow he still had a lighter, which makes me think... He's prepared for anything. He probably, like in the roll of his beanie, probably keeps like a joint. You know what I mean? Yeah, just right there <laughs> behind his ear. Yeah. Just like a like pencil. In the fold. Yeah. Like he's hiding it. Also, who else has a libido that high? You telling me he doesn't get a lot of appetites, various kinds of appetites developing when he's smoking that much pot? They don't call him Jughead for nothing. <laughs> I bet if we looked it up, there would be so many fanfics about it. Also, just the fact that he, like, dresses in stoner attire, like his beanie. He always has that, like, jacket, you know, that's, like, kind of, like, flannel and whatever. And FP has even been like, yeah, maybe we've dealt weed, but, like, nothing real. (laughs) Defending the serpents, being like, weed is harmless. (laughs) He's a a real serpent king for that. (laughs) my serpent king my serpent king (laughs) speaking of serpent king are we ready to move to serpent queen let's move on yeah okay we enter the fbi era yes and this was another twin peaks reference would you literally have an agent kind of cooper right he's affiliated with the coopers oh my god he literally is yeah He's the long lost Cooper. He's, he's a Smith, but he's a Smith. He he should have been raised as a Cooper. Betty's gonna be the agent Cooper mm-hmm. later on. The thing Betty's really dealing with this season, I would say, is destiny and how she fits in with that. Mm-hmm. So for her, she's really reconciling having these serial killer genes and figuring out this memory she repressed of killing her cat and all of these diaries she keeps because apparently serial killers keep diaries. Yeah. And and that's basically her main thing. I don't think she has a lot else going on there. Not thematically. And also the pressure of like her friends thinking, well, she does have the genes. What is she capable of? Like internally and externally, that pressure is there. 
I noticed she's also very heavily relying on Charles in a way that at the beginning of the season, she was very suspicious of him. And we see that he's literally like, he's tapped her phone, tracing her calls and stuff. We also got a reveal very early in the season that he's romantically involved with Chick. Yeah, still. And we kind of dropped it. We did. We dropped it for the rest of the season. I forgot about that. It's literally like revealed in season, in episode like three, maybe. And, and then, then we don't see Chick for the rest of season four. No. Part of that's probably because of the COVID oh, shutting down production. Probably. I'm pretty sure they wanted Chick to come in at the again at the end of season yeah. four like they did season three. <laughs> he's just like the season ender. Yeah. He's the he's the plot twist. He's the deus ex machina. Yeah. So there are three extra episodes that were supposed to be in season four that are not. Right. COVID shut down film production a little early. I, I'm really curious what we would have gotten in terms of like Betty's development as potentially being a serial killer in those last few episodes. I know it was supposed to just wrap up high school for them pretty nicely, but this is kind of Betty adjacent and Charles focused. But if Charles is a familial step right in the middle of Jughead and Betty, Charles shares half of each of their DNA, but they do not share any of each other's. How do the serial killer genes get passed on? This is a very interesting question that I've also thought about. I feel like the only real answer here is that either Charles is lying about having the serial killer genes, and I forgot, and I don't really think that's the case, or Alice is the one carrying the serial killer genes. But there are moments where Jughead is like very like holding himself back from committing serious acts of violence. Well, he also has committed serious acts of violence. I think that's more having to do with growing up in poverty and having an alcoholic gangster king dad. Well, okay, because Betty has it, but her dad does not. But her dad is a serial killer and her grandpa was also a serial killer. So a predisposition for murder does run on her dad's side of the family. Alice does not have a murderous bone in her body, but she she has committed a murder. She did officially get a kill count this season. I feel like she's officially committed two murders, Shady Man and Edgar. I don't have her down for Shady Man. I think she killed him in defense of Chick. I have Chick killed Shady Man. I thought he didn't even touch the body. I think she killed Shady Man. I don't think she killed so, Shady Man. Anyway, my theory about the serial killer gene is that it's a recessive allele, both. Okay, however, however, it's a gene, not an allele. There is a difference. Okay. And there are two different genes. There are two different genes, but I feel like, so if, ew, oh my fucking God, science. If it's a gene, it can't be recessive. Do you mean by that? Because I was imagining it like a Punnett square. Like, okay, <laughs> Alice has the big M for murder, okay. little M <laughs> for no murder. Okay. Or the little M is the murder. Big M is no murder. And then Hal also has big M, little M. Betty has little M, little M. So she is murder genes. I feel like that would also mean that FP is big M, little M. For Alice an FP to have had a child with little m, little m murder capabilities, I think it's possible that Jughead and Jellybean may also be carriers, if not actively little m, little m's themselves. 
they do have a predisposition to violence. Not only, I mean, external factors as well, nature versus nurture and all that. But can we, can we really assume that Jughead doesn't like doing a little bit of violence? He did cut out a big old chunk of flesh from a woman without batting an eye. Okay, but genetics are a lot more complicated than that. It could be that the recessive expression is the murder gene. It could be that the heterozygous expression is the murder gene, which is what in your example would be big M, little M. Mm-hmm. Or it could be only the dominant. And it, it could be none of those. It could be you need both of these genes in different combinations. It could be a lot of different things. But it's it's going to be more complicated than all that. Okay. Well, my theory is basically that Alice and FP both have the predisposition to produce offspring with this DNA. Okay. According to Archie Verse, sorry to interrupt, the Shady Man was bludgeoned with a lamp by Chick officially. Okay. Archie Verse, I trust that they know what's going on. I just thought it was... I guess she did the cleanup. She did the cleanup. And so he was like, you can't prove that I killed him because I don't have any prints on him. Thank you for clearing that up. Next point of research will definitely have to be deeper into the genes because I think that this could be something, especially with Jelly Bean's suspicious ass, like messing with her brother and like half-sister-in-law i don't know what relation that would be like to mess with betty and jughead in this way with the voyeur which i had a note twice oh yeah the voyeur plot Uh, (laughs) because they kept randomly bringing it back up um what would cause somebody to be that nefarious jelly bean is suspicious as fuck people can just be nefarious they don't all need the killer gene to be killers yeah but this is riverdale do you think that they're all just so incestuously interbred that they just all spread the murder gene to each other? I think I think it's possible because, I mean, the original families of Riverdale have been the original families of Riverdale for generations. We get so many examples of flashbacks of yeah. colonial times <laughs> even. Yeah. And they're still all having their same last names played by the same actors they all have the same relationships Mm -hmm. it's always a cooper and and an andrews it's always a cooper and a and a jones Mm. will they won't they and speaking of incest can we talk about not only the fact that jughead and betty have a shared half brother but that they're living in the same house with their parents who are dating and it's still the Cooper house technically, but it's been sold to the Joneses. So now this is FP's house. Mm-hmm. But Alice is still staying in there, even mm-hmm. though she wanted to sell it. And she did sell it. She did sell it. And Jughead and Betty sleep in the same bed. Yeah. Right. And it's still decorated as her childhood bedroom. Terrifying. It's like, did he just bring his clothes in? Like, and, the, and then he goes off to a boarding school and leaves Betty awkwardly alone with FP and Jellybean. She has to deal with that dynamic alone. Yeah. If I were Betty, I would literally kill him. <laughs> I'd be like, I need to go to boarding school and you can stay with your family and my mom. Yeah. I wonder if him also being put into this boarding school was partially to kind of separate him from this dynamic 
to normalize mm. it a little bit. Maybe. Maybe and, at least to get us through until she goes off to college. And speaking of FP and Alice, phallus. It is a phallus that they are together. I, I would not think that if Bughead was going on simultaneously. Yeah. It's, I actually think they're cute together if Bughead is not also simultaneously happening. And like one cannot be endgame if the other one is, you know? Yeah, it's just weird. Yeah. It reminds me of when I played The Sims when I was younger and I put these two single parents with teenage children and I made them all date each other just out of convenience. And then I married the adults and all the teenagers immediately broke up. Oh my God. Automatically. (laughs) Even Sims said no. And you could do some crazy shit in Sims, but for Sims to draw the line there because it's like bordering on incest... Yeah, step-sibling incest. Um, There was this moment where FP and Alice were in the dining room of all places. I don't remember how it started. That's not the important part. Alice takes off her high-heeled shoes that she's just wearing in the living room, and she throws them over FP's shoulders and then playfully runs away, and he has this look of absolute feral glee. on his face and he just chases after her in what i assume is a phallus scene and i'm gonna call that my riverdale ride I can only assume that this is the moment where she is wearing nothing other than a cock brooch. (laughs) And by cock, of course, I mean a rooster brooch. Yes. It also just felt nasty how many times phallus scenes would be immediately followed by bughead scenes. Yeah, there were a lot of like parallel sex scenes that were kind of weird. For example, the first episode after the memorial episode, the core four are hanging out at the Pembroke. And they're like, wow, we're seniors. (laughs) Can you believe? And then they're all just like casual. And then out of nowhere, Bughead starts making out fully like on the couch. And then Barchi is like, I guess that's our cue. They go into the bedroom across the hall or whatever. Leave the door open, I imagine, and start fucking in there. Yes. While Bughead fucks on the couch. Am I wrong in remembering that Betty just straddles Jughead out of nowhere and starts making out with him? Before Barchi even leaves. And I feel like this has happened before, but the fact that it was happening like the night before school starts, I feel like they showed that the door was left open. It felt very like orgy because they've made out with each other in different pairings. And also they put it over a Billie Eilish song. I called that my Rivy Rub and Tug for the week. Your what? My Rivy Rub and Tug. Rivy Rub and Tug? Yeah. <laughs> for the season. You deserve some kind of retribution for that title is it not an accurate one no (laughs) i was both high on an edible and 
brain fog when I wrote that. Wow. (laughs) But anyway, yeah, it was literally to a Billie Eilish song, which I think cemented it as the sex scene of the season for me. It gave me a lot of ick. And normally I really like Jughead and Betty and Veronica and Archie, the way that their relationships are depicted as very high school. And I normally like their the depictions of it, but that was like too much. <laughs> it's not as bad as the one last season though, where Bughead is having sex or like just finished having sex because they're naked in bed and having a conversation. And then it cuts to Phallus naked in bed having a conversation basically the same conversation too and it's like bruh don't parallel this teen couple to their adult parents it's like imagine if Hermione and Fred were still a thing but you know what I find it even worse that Hiram and Hermione are a thing because we had to witness that 50 shades of gray Hermione slaps him and he's like was that violence or foreplay (laughs) that was truly traumatizing and it wasn't that far after the phallus sex scene I think it might have even been the same episode I can find this out it was like the adults are really getting it on and it was interesting in the sense that Hiram seducing Hermione made me realize that this was just an easy way to get him back in the Pembroke to keep the plot moving. Yeah. There were a lot of things like that I noticed this season. That's the first example. Hiram seducing Hermione, getting back in the Pembroke. The second one is Hiram becoming mayor in a voiceover for an episode. The introduction. We don't see any of the campaign. No one runs against him. And it's just so that in that episode, he can ban Archie's Thanksgiving at the community center. Yeah, that was the whole point. And you were right. It was the following episode, though. It was in the episode chapter 63, Hereditary, when Hiram says, is this foreplay or punishment? And then chapter 64, where Betty and Jughead are hanging out in his dorm and immediately start fucking. I have my note. Betty and Jughead immediately start fucking. Meanwhile, Phallus getting it on in the empty house while Alice is wearing a rooster for some reason. But you're right. That whole thing with Hiram becoming mayor was just for the point of the plot for Archie to get his his shit shut down. And I'm sure for things that are going to come up later, it's just going to be convenient to have our villain in a position of power again because they kind of did vanquish him they did and then they immediately unvanquished him yeah he's like this is my prison i come and go as i please (laughs) mija i own that prison (laughs) another thing that i think you pointed out when we were watching it was the bunker the moving of penelope blossom yes the moving of penelope blossom was a very overt she has been living peacefully in the bunker the teen sex bunker after being sentenced there by Shoni, Nana Rose, Jason's dead body, and Julian. The doll. Yes. And she gets moved to watch over the Maple Club, the rum business, that conveniently Hiram as the mayor is now able to raid. So Hiram becoming the mayor is also so that Penelope can move to the Maple Club, which is also so that Jughead can hide in the bunker when he's pretending to be dead. So you have all of these characters kind of nonsensically being moved quickly for a future plot device thing to make sense. Right. 
it's very tricky i imagine to be a writer and have like all these moving pieces because they they have the core four but they also have the alt four and the parents and the alt four's parents and like other side characters that make the plot kind of cycle it must be confusing at times to be like oh shit yeah like we have her down here how are we gonna get Jughead there we need to move her to constantly be having to keep up with that that's the biggest concern of mine I think for season seven our writing I'm like okay at least we kind of get to start fresh I also wouldn't feel too bad about it because I do catch plot holes from time to time for example Sheriff Minota's body double from season three right season two yeah i don't remember it's I think not season three the point of it is that someone was killed in sheriff mineta's name and then sheriff mineta also died and then we also have the extra head from the car accident with hal because hal did survive it with just a finger but they did find all six bodies so who was this extra body that hal presumably murdered in his place and then like cut off his head and like and then burnt to a crisp and then burnt it to a crisp he stole any identifying factors pretty much right yeah they were like well the bodies were so like demolished we can't identify them at all also something i noticed Betty gets taken off of the blue and gold, right? Mm -hmm. And in the series, this is kind of used as a way to bring Alice into the investigation so that she can revive the cold case of Mr. Chipping with Betty because she helps her move the murder board into the home. Right, because Alice was also taken off of RIVW. Right. And so why is it that only a few episodes later, with no resolution to that, She's back in the blue and gold writing. You're right. She does like the football game. Exactly. That's a plot hole. Unless it was very shortly mentioned somewhere. You're on probation. Welcome back. Here's your first assignment. Like, (laughs) anyway, we haven't really discussed Veronica or Archie too much in depth yet. Right. I have a lot to say about Archie. Okay. Let's start with Archie then. So the number one thing I have to say about Archie, and this is a small thing, but it bothered me a lot, is Archie's hot roots this season. The amount of times I looked at this man and he had blonde roots near his ears was insane. Okay, this has never happened until season four. Did they just suddenly decide we have to make some budget cuts? We don't have enough funding for like the same hairstylist. You got to do your own hair. Archiekins, something changed. I noticed it too a couple times. Also, these flashbacks to Archie as a child. Did you notice that that child is straight up brunette? No, I feel like he was kind of ginger, but it was like dark red. It wasn't. They didn't hire like a ginger child actor. But in their defense, that would have been scary. <laughs> <laughs> I think. <laughs> I think it was in everyone's best interest to hire a child actor who was a light brown that they could put a wash of red over or maybe like a red filter in post. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. like a a ginger child, scary. <laughs> Something about them. They're just like translucent and neon at the same time <laughs> in the scariest ways. No offense to anyone who was a ginger kid, but full offense to the children actor. <laughs> they could have hired instead there's a reason that almost all the shots we get of jason are his dead body yeah 
yeah. it's less scary when he's not alive. <laughs> anyway, Archie's hair aside, his big theme this season is overcoming his trauma up mm-hmm. until now and kind of using it as a vessel for good doing. I noticed that a lot of his motivation for working with these children in this community center is coming from his time in juvie and specifically the line, right, I dropped out of the fourth grade to sell drugs for my Nana type of stuff. That's literally what these kids are doing. They are dropping out of school to sell drugs for their Nana for, for Dodger. And I think that Archie sees that and he's trying to kind of intercept and prevent these kids from going the same way. Uh, I also saw directly some Black Hood references still. Oh, really? Yes. Number one, Dodger dressing up as the Black Hood, going into Pops and shooting FP in front of Archie. How many, I have a note, like how many fucking times does a shooting have to happen in Pops? At least three times now, right? (laughs) I think so. Which I think the Black Hood reference is a good way to bring up one of the main themes I noticed with Archie is like him also dealing with his anger as part of his resolution and like trying to overcome his trauma. He has a lot of anger and I think he was very guided by that last season. A lot of his vigilante shit was like stemmed from his anger and the unfairness of his life. And I think it started out that way too when they addressed in the plot that Luke Perry died as his dad. He was just angry about that. And so I think it's a lot of what you said, how he's trying to do good with it. Like, I think he's trying to transition from anger into something positive. Try to just genuinely turn to having a better attitude. Like, life is unfair, so how can I change that? And did you also notice that when Archie was on his vigilante shit, (laughs) that he was wearing a black hood? Mm Mm-hmm. Really makes you think. It really is kind of like in the comics where the black hood is a mask and... Each character puts it on and kind of puts on the same power. Like a righteous strength to clean things up. And for Archie, that's more in a savior complex kind of way. Mm -hmm. But it is still a trying to save the town of wrongdoing. Yeah. I think at one point he and Veronica literally say like, okay, let's do what we can. They make a plan together. Archie's going to do stuff with the rec center and Veronica's going to do something else. And they say, let's clean up this town, which is kind of what the Black Hood was trying to do. He was trying to clean the town of sin. And I think Archie's trying to clean the town of systemic issues that are just blatantly bad. (laughs) Like (laughs) the circumstances that these kids are in that force them to... Well, he's not even really like getting to the roots. He's just getting to like the... This guy specifically is trying to get these kids to run drugs. Let me get that guy out of it. Not the core reason why they're in a position where they need to run drugs to survive. Right. Dodger is somehow convincing these children with pizza and arcade games and Mm -hmm. stuff. And not as much money. Although sometimes money, yes. And remember Archie's solution once was to give a child a job at Pops yeah like a minimum wage job in a small town yeah if that was going to solve the issue then there wouldn't be this crime in the first place right so Archie kind of has the right heart but not necessarily the tools or the knowledge to fix 
all of the crime in his town. Right. And I think there's like a lot more that they probably would have gotten into, especially if Luke Perry hadn't died. Rest in peace. I think that they were going to do a lot with his character that would have like pushed Archie to do more like social change kind of things. Like, did you notice that Fred was very like, he was popping those pills. Yes. And I think personally that maybe Fred was going to have an addiction plot. And since the actor passed away, I think they moved the plot to Uncle Frank. Right. I think that that DUI was meant to be Fred's. I think so. Because we also have, like you said, Fred popping those pills post Black Hood shooting. Mm -hmm. We also know that Archie has a tendency toward addiction himself. He falls into alcoholism multiple times in the series. Yeah. Season one, even, where he goes on a full-on bender (laughs) about his parents' divorce. Right. And then he gets a drink thrown in his face by Valerie. Like, that whole party, he was blasted. Yes. And you also have his alcoholism era post-juvie that Mm -hmm. Josie basically has to, like, save him from. Right. All of these different like coping mechanisms for his issues. And I don't think he ever really resolves them. And I think it's interesting that they made Frank give Monroe these presumably opioids to like be able to play in the big game so that he could go to Notre Dame. And I think that was a very defining moment for Archie too, where he was like, okay, I understand the reasoning for those actions, but I disagree with the method that he took. But ultimately... Monroe's life is going to be better off for having taken these drugs. I wonder like if that would have been something that Archie would have had to deal with like his dad pushing him in a different direction like sometimes you have to do things in a backwards around the law kind of way to take care of those that you love and give them better opportunities and maybe that would have fueled his vigilante shit. I don't know. Sometimes you need to dress up as the man who traumatized you, handcuff a child to a wheel, leave, take the mask off come back and pretend to stumble upon them and save them i forgot he did that it's kind of stupid (laughs) what about mary have you noticed anything about mary this season she's gay now she's gay now she's also molly ringwald she has played multiple late coming out gay moms and also in season one she implied she was cool with polyism Polygamy. Polyamory? Polyamory. Polygamism is not <laughs> the correct. <laughs> Did you notice anything else, though? You brought her up. Well, she had a moment on Thanksgiving that I thought was really powerful. I think at the beginning, she was kind of depicted as just aloof, uninterested in being a part of her kid's life. Like, she was always trying to take him to Chicago and, like, take him away. She was painted as very much, like, not the sit and fight kind of person. Like when a fight or flight instinct kicks in, she is a flight. But on Thanksgiving, like the turkey thing exploded and like, you know, the whole thing with Darla and Dodger's family. She's buckled down and fought, which I thought was really interesting and like unlike her character, but it presented to me a shift that makes sense later when she's just like, okay, Archie, I support you, I guess. I'll be your lawyer for the business pro bono. Like, we're going to make this into a whatever and whatever, whatever. Um, you know, like, it would, it just seemed out of character for her to, oh. like, step up, take the gun and be like, I am a lawyer and these are my rights and you have to leave. <laughs> 
Okay, that was one of my potential KO moments for sure. Really? Yeah, was when Darla, who happens to be Dodger's mother, right? (laughs) Just happens to be. Yeah. Shows up and they have Archie at gunpoint very much like the Black Hood had him at gunpoint in Pops. It felt very similar. Him on his knees. They even made him get on, yeah, get on his knees with his hands behind his head. Uh Uh-huh. It was very referential. And the turkey exploded, and then, like you said, Mary pulling out her gun, being like, I have a right to have this gun, and you leave now. And then Veronica is like, Mary, I'm obsessed. Yeah. And then you also have Mary implying later that the ghost of Fred exploded this turkey. And I just love that little detail at the end. Yeah. Something about that episode, I think just the fact that Darla was there. Okay. Darla storming in wearing this very like penny lane fur lined coat in all her 70s chain smoker glory walking in being like this is a nice gym (laughs) every time she opened her mouth was my ko moment (laughs) every time she speaks like the first time she came in the previous season or season two or three with chick and she was just like I could get used to this house. (laughs) Her fucking voice. She, I don't know what that actress sounds like outside of Riverdale, but she sells it. And it knocks me out because I want to give her an Oscar every time she's on screen. Darla being present at Thanksgiving was my KO moment. beautiful and i had so many other contenders but i just love her so much (laughs) that's kind of all i really wanted to talk about with archie like his anger the thanksgiving turning point it's interesting that he also like embodied a lot of the black hood i hadn't thought about that before um but I feel like even Archie, there are moments where I was like, could he have a serial killer gene? Like, he <laughs> he wanted to kill Hiram. He did. He wanted to kill Hiram multiple times. And remember in season two, he wanted to kill the Black Hood. And yeah. Veronica made him throw his gun into Sweetwater River because he was worried that he actually had the capability to kill someone. Yeah. And he even justified going to Juvie like, well, I could have killed him. I didn't, but I would have. Exactly. If I had the chance. And I could be a danger to anybody. So I I really think there's something to be said with the generational inbreeding on this show. I think that there's something to be explored with this generational inbreeding and like repetition of storylines. Because I wonder if jumping back to the 50s is just going to restart everything or like if we're going to jump back into the correct timeline or what. But it's pretty consistent, I feel like, jumping back into the 50s. I think it's going to give us a chance to explore the like predestined sort of relationships that their families have always had with each other since the founding of Riverdale. Like, are we going to see new connections being made that wouldn't normally happen in the primary timeline is this going to be something that we're just going to like forget? I think there's something to it that affects the characters and potentially leaves them in a place where they could all be serial killers. 
Okay. <laughs> I don't know about that per se, but I do have some notes on the theme of evil and human nature in Riverdale, especially this season. In the episode where Alice is documenting the fake death of Jughead, she asks Nana Rose, the town matriarch, when the darkness took hold of Riverdale. And Nana Rose says that Riverdale was a town that was born in blood and has bathed in it ever since. And I thought that this was very important. Yeah. And very interesting. And also, in the next episode, Betty talking about this generational cycles of violence. She literally says cycles of violence to describe how these wrongdoings that were happening to people's grandparents, like the story being stole from Jughead's granddad, the story being stole from Donna's grandmother, were things that they were inheriting, sort of. The idea that you can inherit the generational trauma, the generational violence, and that like the violence of your ancestors becomes the violence of your generation as well, mm-hmm. is definitely a theme within Riverdale. And it was also brought up uh, at the end of last season, right? The snake eating its own head. At the end of season three, Penelope's entire motivation for doing all of these crimes is because of what happened to Jason and what happened to her. And those things are because of what happened to Clifford and like what the Blossoms have been doing their entire time colonizing Riverdale. And it just kind of goes in this massive circle where you don't even know what the starting thing was. Right. They even kind of like mentioned that in the first season, right? Was it the first season or the second season with the Octana? And Cheryl was like, wait we're not but we're not like that now are we and her mom was like how do you think we got all of this there's gonna continue to be violence it's just how we exist we exist because of the violence and now we have to exist for the violence and in that moment they were talking about how they obtained their land and like who they had to kill and push out of it in order to obtain it who they had to colonize basically and that note that nana rose said like it was born in blood and has been bathing in it ever since that was pretty big even just like the visual image of riverdale being this town literally on the river providing so much fertile land but the way that they've abused that land it's like even the land itself is split the good versus evil right speaking of the darkness of riverdale here is another theme that I want to talk about. It's something I know you love to talk about, and it's capitalism. <laughs> the theme of capitalism has to deal primarily with two of the characters this season, Jughead, and also additionally Moose a little bit, who are literally poor children who are brought into this high school, brought in with the intention to be murdered for sport by these rich kids Mm -hmm. and we also are dealing with Archie's whole thing trying to break these cycles of poverty at home do you have anything else to add to that well it's kind of like at the basis of everything in Riverdale even Cheryl like after Jughead is presumed dead the only thing she can say is I'm really sorry I called him hobo that one time it's like he was literally homeless 
and she was making fun of him for it like and then she calls him that again later yeah like i said with the octana like that was something that was an issue of class but also racism and colonialism but class is really big not just in riverdale riverdale as the high school is kind of like a bit of an equalizer but there are social classes there as well like ethel at the bottom (laughs) (laughs) where she belongs in my opinion (laughs) rightfully so but that makes her bitter her constant placement at the bottom caused her to threaten one of her classmates because she couldn't she wasn't even considered for a lead role just the assumption that cheryl is the hbic but there's a lot of like these class issues in riverdale in general but with stonewall prep i thought it was interesting that like you said they brought moose in first to be the sacrificial lamb so to speak like they were gonna murder him for sport for the sake of passing on a tradition and everyone was fine with it even donna who came from poverty because her grandma had her story stolen from her and like she didn't come from poverty she like obviously had wealth but like probably about the same amount of wealth as like betty you know like middle class wealth which is still considerably more than Jughead and Moose who were brought in for the purpose of murdering. But yeah, it was fascinating with Donna specifically because she masterminded this whole persona of a rich girl who deserved to be there and deserved to be the one committing the murder, not being murdered, even though she knew it was wrong to commit violence like that because it had happened to her previous generations. She felt entitled to it. I think the sense of entitlement is at the core of all of the class issues. People either feel entitled to more than what they've been dealt or they feel entitled to suppress people because of what they've been dealt. That's an excellent point. That makes me think of the duel between Jughead and Brett, right? To prove who is the most stonewall man. Mm -hmm. And they have to do two different instances of violence and then one chess game just to even it out. As if chess is even something that Jughead really plays. And that's not to say that he's not smart. Maybe he does play chess. I don't know. But chess to me feels like kind of a rich activity. Yeah. It definitely doesn't seem like something a kid who is living at his job at a drive-in theater would have stumbled upon. And so that's really interesting to think about. And the fact that Jughead purposely throws the match because he doesn't want to be the most Stonewall man. He kind of rejects this elitism for his trailer park serpent king self. Yeah. I had like a bit of a moment with that scene because it's like, did he reject it because he decided he didn't want to be the most Stonewall worthy man he didn't want to be this person this classist elite kind of piece of shit man and instead he wanted to be someone who worked hard and valued other things or was he afraid that he would lose Mm. and like reinforce the idea that because he's not good at these things that were outside of his like social class norms like chess he is therefore inferior Like, did he give it up before he could have? Could he have won? Was he even capable of winning? Did he know he was going to lose and was just throwing it on purpose to seem like the bigger man despite his class? I think I read too much into it. Because, like, that was also something that they talked about in the episode that you hate. 
um, <laughs> in treatment, chapter 65, the therapist, Miss Burble, was like, oh, you like to not even try. You have this like victim complex. Oh, you're totally right. Because he wasn't applying to colleges all the yeah. time, right? He was like, well, I'm not going to get in. Like, obviously, my grades aren't that good. And I have been in a gang since I was a kid. Why would a college want me? Like, I'm not going to go to college. The self-sabotage side. The self-sabotage side. He'd rather fail on his own terms than let them see him fail with effort. And so I thought about that in that moment. And I think a lot of that does stem from like class trauma. Because it is easier if you're aware of all of these social limitations that you've grown up with. It's hard to overcome and want to put in the work to overcome them. Because it's so easy for someone of a higher class to just brush you aside. I think I also am going to say Veronica has a little bit of exploring this idea because in her relationship with Archie, she has to reconcile her wealth a lot with her identity and her relationship with him. For example, in the Thanksgiving episode where she pulls the tablecloth on this big feast. And as a side note, I've noticed it's totally a trope that all the lodge family drama happens at the dining table Mm -hmm. and especially at breakfast. Yeah, it's like very Italian mobster, but instead of at dinner with like the pasta and the bread, it's like at breakfast. With that aside, she's doing things like giving Archie $40,000 to renovate his community center. The angel donation Mm -hmm. that she did a few seasons ago for Fred by stealing her parents' credit card. But at the same time, she says things like, Dartmouth was my safety school. Yeah. Right? So she still has a lot of this entitlement and she's not fully on either side. And that's also something that happens a lot in the relationship with Hiram, where she rejects his wealth. She rejects the way that he does business. But then she also has this idea of family that's very strongly ingrained in her. Mm -hmm. So she wants to reject her father, but at the same time, she doesn't. Right. She feels like she can't because he's blood. Mm -hmm. especially when he starts getting sick and she does a full turnaround she just joins his rum business after all of that and she's like daddy you turned a new leaf and we get a flashback to him literally killing someone yeah after telling veronica that he didn't that's interesting i think i think it's like a more common theme that gets explored in lots of characters relationships because it really comes down to power at the Mm -hmm. end of the day like Donna trying to reclaim the power from Mr. DuPont who killed a bunch of people to like keep his secrets and keep his power and Donna's trying to expose that but she's just as bad as him in taking the power back same like with Veronica like she's she hates her dad's way of doing business and yet she does so many shady things to try to one-up him with her own business people want in this show want to have high morality but are willing to do anything to justify the ends justify the means when it comes to like proving themselves superior morally and also in business or in writing or whatever it is this is unrelated but i wanted to bring up the fact that i had a realization Mm -hmm. that veronica's alter ego monica posh 
with the blonde wig is kind of exactly opposite of Betty's alter ego with the short dark wig. Oh my god, you're right. The dark Betty. And then also Hermosa comes in and she has also a blonde wig and her alter ego is Rosa Hibon, right? Yeah. I thought it was funny that also Hermosa is like kind of gay, at least in her alter ego way. Yeah. It was almost a KO moment for me when she showed up to Labanui and Shoni was like making out and dancing really sexy and they just start kissing and Hermosa's in the back just like kind of grooving. <laughs> like I'm <laughs> done with whatever's happening in front of me. She's like, <laughs> I'll join a threesome. <laughs> I'll do this for Poppy. But Veronica does that too at times. Like she's kissed Betty. All I'm saying is here. here's the, the note that I have. Okay. They put on each other's hair to be sexy. Therefore, they think each other is sexy. Mm. And maybe they should date or at least explore that. Does this lead into what you were going to tell me but saved for the pod? Yes, this is my idea that they should have their opposite wigs on. And have gay sex. Yeah. (laughs) That's fantastic. And you know what? Hermosa in this season, after Jughead is presumed dead, she goes into Veronica's room and she's like, Hermanita, level with me. Like, did you help your friend kill her boyfriend so that you two could be together? Are you two gay? Are you in love with your best friend and you wanted to get her boyfriend out of the picture so that you could be together? It's like (laughs) AU. Betty and Veronica really are interested in each other killed Jughead for real so that they could be together okay but AU Archie is gay and from New York and (laughs) lives with all his friends did you notice that Miss Burble accused Archie of being gay yeah of doing the cruising in Fox Forest yeah she just assumed which implies two things number one she already talked to Kevin and we didn't get those tapes and number two that Archie is gay for I think the fourth time third or fourth time we've mm-hmm. got a Archie's gay accusation yeah and every time he's been like nah but not in like a no <laughs> me gay never like but maybe in a parallel universe I can maybe totally in my that. weird fantasy yeah my weird comic book fantasy perhaps Archie's weird Archie's weird fantasy <laughs> Every time someone accuses Archie of being gay, I consider that a reference. (laughs) (laughs) It honestly feels like one. Speaking of references to other Roberto works, we have Pureheart the Powerful costume for Archie on Halloween, Mm -hmm. just like Afterlife with Archie. And of course, Pureheart the Powerful is already established as Archie in the comics for super teens and stuff like that. But specifically in Afterlife with Archie, That is his Halloween costume. Interesting. That felt like a nod. Number two, this is not a a Ras work per se. Roberto Aguirre's Casa. Ras. We have... (laughs) R-A-S. R-A-S. Amen. Um, In the comic Blossom 666, this is in the Archie horror genre. It's not written by him, but he started the genre with Afterlife with Archie. 
there is a triplet brother for the blossoms julian who was put up for adoption so it's it's different than the cheryl absorbing twin in the womb Mm -hmm. type of thing but julian the triplet brother is established in the archie universe interesting number three Betty is talking to the Stonewall, the Stonies at the big confrontation. Reveal Jughead is alive. Let's talk through the murder. Yeah. She says the words trying to commit the perfect murder, which is exactly what Leopold and Loeb do. Right. And that was also a prompt that they had. Remember like when Jughead and Brett's stories came at Titan last the story that they had to write was the perfect murder. Yes. Another Leopold and Loeb reference. Another one. And last and probably least is Betty's diaries. Mm-hmm. In Afterlife with Archie, there's at least one entire comic that's just told through Betty's diaries. Ooh. And the epistolary form. I love it. I didn't know I had a word. (laughs) (laughs) Epistolary, meaning through letter or diaries. Okay, yeah. It's an epistolary form then. Interestingly, it's also the comic that really cements her new relationship with Archie. And it really reminded me a lot of Afterlife with Archie when she was reading her old diaries and thinking about Archie and whether or not she should have this affair with him. Yeah. It felt very, very similar. The reading of the diaries and wondering if she should have the affair was in Afterlife with Archie, or is that? are you saying that's what happened in this season? Because I feel like that's what happened. That's what happened in this season, okay. and then in Afterlife with Archie, she was reading these comics about them growing up and secretly having an affair. Oh, okay. Interesting. Very, very interesting. And a lot of them were the same scenes, like the early proposal, the early proposal as children, jealousy because of other people. Mm -hmm. In the comics, it was more around Veronica. In Riverdale, it was more about Cheryl. Right. Cheryl made Archie kiss her. Yes, because they're both redheads and the bloodline must remain pure. (laughs) (laughs) The blossom blood. It's weird that there are two notable ginger families. Is Archie really a ginger family? Mary has red hair. But not Fred. No. Hmm. But also his hair is kind of gray. No, but it was like brown gray. He was like silver fox. Speaking of ginger families, (laughs) we need to talk about Cheryl. Okay, please. We just glossed over her entire body defiling count. Which, by the way, (laughs) I don't know if I should count it as one very long body defiling or if it should be counted as a a thousand small instances. Yes, if we have any listeners, email us at riverdalewriterspod at gmail.com and tell us how we should count the defiling of Jason's corpse. (laughs) Please do. Please do. So Cheryl does a lot of shit this season. Mm Mm-hmm. She basically is trying to figure out whether or not she's gone clinically insane. Cuckoo bananas. Cuckoo bananas, as she would probably actually say. I think she actually did. 
probably. I love that phrase and I use it unironically in my day-to-day life. And when I heard it, I was just like, oh, cuckoo bananas. <laughs> you're in too deep. You're, you, you're cuckoo bananas. I am cuckoo bananas. So if you'll remember last season, Edgar exhumed Jason's body for the purpose of indoctrinating Cheryl into a cult. <laughs> As one does. And following that incident, Cheryl took the body home to Thistle House into the chapel, which is conveniently in the basement of Thistle House, which I thought should have been a small secondary house since it's not the mansion that she burned down at the end of season one. It is. No, she burned that down. She burned down uh, Thornhill. Thornhill. I'm saying that Thornhill is the grand mansion and is Thistle House not like a cottage secondary yeah it's like it's like a grandmother flat as one would say in realty but it's still so grand it's like, it is still so grand why is it still so grand i don't they understand have generational wealth and colonial riches <laughs> of course it's going to be grand reggie almost finding this corpse because he needed to pee and didn't want to wait in line <laughs> is the funniest thing to me that was really funny there were a lot of close calls with the nurse that tony hired to take care of nana rose Mm -hmm. almost going down there because his body was literally attracting rats i like that he's always in like a wheelchair too yeah it seems like nana rose's wheelchair but she still has her own so how are you thinking about counting his defiling okay so we have the initial exhumation Mm -hmm. from edgar We have Cheryl taking it home. And for me, I'm counting a body defiling as anything that is not reporting a dead body through the proper channels. Right. So to take it home is an act of defiling. Instead of like calling the authorities or calling a funeral home. I would honestly even accept maybe her burying him because she didn't kill him. Although... I don't know. I might still count her burying him as defiling. I'm not sure. I think if she dug the grave herself and plopped the body into the dirt. That would be a defiling. But putting him back in his grave might not be. No. I think especially if she had his coffin. Okay. So she takes the body home. Mm -hmm. Defiling number one. But then she also talks to him all the time. Wheels him around Thistle House. Just the act of keeping him out feels like every second is a violation on the counter. Like every time he's on screen, Mm -hmm. it counts towards... Maybe that's how you should count it. Every time we see her with the corpse and she's not putting him back where he belongs is a a defiling. Okay, then I guess I'll go back and fix that. But I don't think anyone's going to beat her count based on that. (laughs) Tony even got a point on this. Oh, God. For helping dig up Jason after they do decide to replace him in his grave. Take him back out again. She also is seen wheeling him around a few times. Tony, I think, is way too okay with Cheryl's insanity at this point. She's complicit for sure. She's so complicit. Cheryl's pussy has to taste like cherry pie. Like, Like literally straight up. I don't know what else could excuse this behavior (laughs) also the fact that they met at pops and just talking about tony for a second 
maybe she's unwell and she's done a whole a whole world of shit that we have just we are not privy to as an audience maybe she's equally crazy and cheryl's equally supportive of her crazy that like but we just don't see it because she's such a side character at this stage in this in the plot but when they meet at pops and cheryl is like great news the test came back negative i didn't absorb him that means i'm being gaslit and tony's like okay great babe like let me know if you need my help in figuring this out she's just like i don't know what that means but fantastic hooray no questions asked she's like i don't know what this blood test that you did means but i'm glad it's negative it could have been for anything. It could have been for like an STI. It could have been for pregnancy. It could have been for whatever. And she was just like, I guess it's good. <laughs> she, she would have accepted anything, I think. Mm-hmm. She even accepted murdering Cheryl's uncle mm-hmm. in self-defense. But that's still a body count for Tony now. Yeah. And they both get an additional body defiling count for disposing of Uncle Bedford, which I believe they just dumped him in Sweetwater River. Yeah. No? They didn't, they didn't do anything like extra precautionary. They were just like, oh, we'll just dump him right before it freezes. Cheryl literally said that the river will freeze over and that the salmon will eat his eyeballs. And no remains will be left. Yes. And Tony helped her stage a fake cannibalism Donner Party style mm-hmm. dinner party. Because apparently the Blossoms were the Donner Party. Or had a Donner Party story in their history. To scare away the other Blossom family yeah. owners of the company. The aunts and uncles that she apparently had. I guess they were kind of in season one, right? That was like why Archie was there to impress them. Oh, yeah, I guess so. Maybe not the same actors, but... But like the same distant family types. Yes. Yeah. To top it all off, we have two things. Jason's Viking burial with Mm -hmm. the CGI fire. That was almost my KO moment. It was truly awful. Cheryl was wearing this outfit that was mixed with white and cream. Oh, that was almost a KO moment for me. As if Cheryl would do that. I know. It's like she knows better. She does know better. (laughs) It should be all cream or all white. Not a mix. You can't have that like blue powdery white with like a yellow cream color wheel baby what what were they thinking (laughs) what were they thinking also her performance of cherry bomb immediately following her locking a coach in a room by herself to the point where she had a panic attack and quit and told her vixens slay she literally said slay and for that any performance she would have followed the word slay with would have been my song of the season But because it was, especially because it was Cherry Bomb, I love the Runaways. That was fantastic. Which also felt like a gay reference. Is it your song of the season? It's my song of the season. Song of the season. Oh. Cherry Bomb is my song of the season. Especially because of like what you said. She locks her Sue Sylvester type of a coach into the room. Her coach only wore tracksuit adjacent outfits they were not tracksuits themselves but it was like a tracksuit onesie or like a tracksuit shirt and pants with a hoodie but yeah the fact that she did cherry bomb cherry bomb to me always feels gay 
because of the movie The Runaways, starring Kristen Stewart as Joan Jett and Dakota Fanning as Sherry Curry in the band The Runaways. They were gay for each other. It was fantastic, and that movie was very formative in my life. They performed Cherry Bomb in that movie. They also did it on Riverdale, and therefore it's my song of the season. The lead-up for all of this was to tell you that Cheryl is once again my HBIC. 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 Head bitch in chaos. Really? Yes. She just did so much crazy shit. You're right. She did. To me, nothing topped my HBIC's work, though. Mm. As much as Cheryl was chaotic and crazy and really going through some mental instability this season, what my HBIC did was a lot more premeditated, getting generational revenge, avenging her grandmother, being the bitch slapping one of the most annoying men I've ever seen in my life, saying, I'm the brains of the operation. Don't you forget, I'm the one in charge. She literally calls herself the one in charge, the brains of the operation. And for almost besting Betty, Donna was my HBIC. HBIC. HBIC, head bitch in chaos. Wow, Donna Sweet. I did consider Donna Sweet. I think what cemented my personal choice Mm -hmm. of not including her was the fact that she was avenging a grandmother who died before she was born. And to me, this was confusing on a number of levels. Mm -hmm. On one hand, I can kind of see that there is a book series that could have been my destiny had it not been stolen from her Mm -hmm. but to have a personal connection to a grandmother who died decades before you were born is something that also i have experience with and i do not feel connected at all to my grandmother who died in the 80s and jane dallas brown donna's grandmother died in 1978 is what i have here okay that's a valid point however You and your grandmother do not really share much as far as you're aware. Donna's passion is for writing, just like it was her grandmother's. To have a gift or an interest that feels like it's your legacy because it runs in your family, a a would-have-been successful writer had it not been for her untimely murder and the theft of her creative work, I feel like it makes sense for someone who's like found writing on their own, discovered this family legacy that should have been and wants to reclaim it mm-hmm. and make it their own this time. I do think it's a little bit weird that she has this vendetta against Mr. DuPont specifically, but I don't think she really cared as much about him and the murder so much as she did about reclaiming what should have been her family's legacy. Okay. To me, it felt like a weak motive, and it reminded me at the end of season three when Jughead is asking Chick about why he's the Gargoyle King, Mm -hmm. and Chick just says, I don't know, I thought it'd be fun to have all these blood sacrifices and kill people. It's also a really weak motive. Right. He's just like, who wouldn't want blood sacrifices for them? So I think that's also just a Riverdale trope, is a weak motive. Yeah. 
or a dropped motive out of nowhere right like penelope being like i was a child bride all of a sudden like yeah and hiram going from i'm gonna kill archie to i'm gonna give him my gym to i know he came to the hospital room to kill me and it's not over between us to the boxing Mm -hmm. match to i'm gonna work out with him here and it's not weird yeah it's very back and forth with hiram archie and i don't really understand their relationship much i don't think they do either i think they're drawn to each other in a weird way they need to have sex (laughs) 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 they need to resolve this tension between them in a healthy way (laughs) is sex for resolution a healthy coping mechanism could be but that doesn't mean it is (laughs) (laughs) because we know Archie has a hard time doing things in a healthy way it could provide clarification it could help him realize that he is gay since everyone keeps telling him he's not going to admit his attraction to Jughead I don't think no I don't think he's attracted to Jughead but I think he is a little bit to Hiram in the same way that he's attracted to Veronica I feel like between Hermione and Hiram like Archie's more attracted to Hiram like that's within Veronica mm-hmm. that's a weird tangent we don't need to include <laughs> I think we should because I honestly think that you're absolutely right and in a very similar way to like this conversation we've had before that Veronica like every child represents a parent like they are the same sort of persona being passed down and through these generations and cycles of trauma and violence Veronica embodies her dad the way that her dad like probably embodied his dad or whatever or like defied his dad you know like she has the same kind of like energy that her dad has more so than her similarities with her mom and you even said at one point she and her mom were like kind of competing for her dad's attention and now Edmosa is also into that circle of competition for Hiram's attention and maybe Archie is in there too <laughs> maybe Archie is a co-competitor it's like a soft incest plot to mirror what's going on with the Coopers and the Joneses mm-hmm. yeah it's more implicit than the Cooper Jones in incestuationship um so we didn't get to your song of the season Oh, we didn't get to my song of the season. That's because we haven't talked about the musical episode. (gasps) Let's talk about the musical episode. Hedwig. Hedwig and the Angry Inch. What a choice. There were so many songs that I had to consider inside of this episode. I knew it had to be one of them. I really loved Kevin's declaration with his boombox we're generation z (laughs) yeah (laughs) pressing down that button and then they do random number generation that was not my song of the season but it was a contender later on in the episode there's a song that is happening while our core four are already in a fight so i thought Mm. about exquisite corpse which is the song they sing when they are fighting but this is the song that they are singing when Barchi is about to kiss and sort of cement their temporary affair mm-hmm. and when Jughead is in the bunker 
and Veronica is just alone at the Pembroke. And there are so many individual pieces to this song that I want to talk about. So first of all, it's called Origin of Love. Right. Okay. And it is the most technically good one, in my personal opinion, in the musical. It feels like the one that has been rehearsed the most. It felt like it had the nicest moments for all of the actors. There was a lot of actually decent belting in it. It was what I would consider Cole Sprouse's only decent song. And even then, it had some rough parts. I'm sorry if you're listening, Cole. You're you're doing a great job. Cole, I think you're one of the best actors in the show if you're listening. (laughs) (laughs) We love you. I specifically love your belting. And... (laughs) I really liked when you threw a tape and destroyed it, even though it was literally evidence that was trying to help you understand mm-hmm. the case that you were solving. You did it just for the vibe, just for the song. I appreciated that. I love through. on that song specifically too. Cole, if you're listening, when you were belting and you said, I don't know the line, but you said the word fire and there was an echo and it was like, five, five, five. I don't remember the melody i don't remember the rest i just remember being drawn to type that note echo on fire (laughs) i also have echo on fire (laughs) under my notes as song of the season season. secondly veronica's part there is a moment that feels referential to greece where Maybe it's not only Greece that does it. It's the first thing that pops into my head when they're singing Summer Nights at the very end and Chandra Travolta's ghost face kind of pops up oh, in half the screen. Oh my god. The same thing happens <laughs> with Archie and Archie's face is popping up as Veronica singing, I was looking at you. And it was so artful. And Lily, Lily, if you're listening, you slayed you slayed this song you slayed the song before you put in the work for Hedwig and I applaud you and also Archie was decent Archie was decent (laughs) (laughs) honestly I think you're right I think I I try to stray from making my song of the season from the musical episode because I feel like there's something about the musical episodes that do feel a little bit contrived but not in a bad way I do feel like they just happen to happen for the sake of existence like they don't really necessarily add something and so I like to give my song of the seasons to songs that kind of come in out of nowhere that either bolster what's happening visually or parallel or contrast what's happening Another contender of mine was All That Jazz Mm -hmm. um, that Veronica sang. Um, I forgot what was going on, but Origin of Love was really good. I think you have a very valid point for that. And I understand your reasoning for avoiding the musical episodes because of how contrived they feel. I don't know if you've noticed this, but the musical episodes are almost exactly to the episode number the same across seasons. Interesting. I Well, I didn't notice that because I have mine organized in chapters. Oh, okay. Not like episode, chapter. I might be wrong about next season, though. I f- it could also shift. 
in my memory, next to normal is the finale. But there's also 19 episodes in season five, which is unusual. Most of the seasons have 22 episodes. And we know that season four was supposed to have 22 episodes, Mm -hmm. but was cut short. And that's why I also think we should talk about the season finale, which was just killing Mr. Honey, right? Mm -hmm. How did that feel to you as a season finale for Riverdale? It felt lackluster. Yes. I feel like the cliffhanger was not big enough. To me, the cliffhanger was also a little bit obvious. Like, who else had access to Jughead's laptop with a story that he had not sent to anyone and only showed to Betty? Who else had access to Betty's computer which had the original copy of the snuff film of Jason being shot. Like, who else had access to all of this? Like, the call is coming from inside the house. And that was a a direct quote from earlier in this season. Um, The Halloween episode, Exhibit A. Exhibit fucking A, the Halloween episode. Betty comes upstairs after she gets this call where they're like, the call is coming from inside the house. And then she goes upstairs because she hears something... And it's Jelly Bean faking dead as if she had been murdered or like committed suicide by slitting her throat. It was only Jelly Bean and Betty inside the house. And the call was coming from inside. Hmm. Which suspicious fucking character could that be? Maybe the like 15 year old who just runs away and says, I'm going to go play Minecraft. Like it was too obvious that it could, who it could have been, you know, for that ending. You bringing up Minecraft? I feel like there's something we need to talk about. So up until now, we've kind of had a mix of fake off brands, presumably to avoid copyright infringement, Mm -hmm. mixed in with clearly sponsored objects, clearly mixed in with things that are somehow both. So, for example, earlier in the show, we have references to things like Nancy Drew, which now in season four is suddenly Tracy True. Right. So why are we living in a universe where Nancy Drew and Tracy True both exist? Exactly. Is that just because the characters are interacting with those things in a way that the real life owners of the intellectual property would not appreciate like there's a difference between just referencing a nancy Mm -hmm. drew book and saying that the granddaughter is trying to avenge her grandmother's legacy being stolen by the ghost writers of nancy drew right yeah is that the only reason that's the only reason i can think of maybe they just forgot about them. Well, I don't know how they could forget about the Nancy Drew reference because that's literally one of the ways that they figured out who the Black Hood was. Exactly. And I think there also might be a Hardy Boys reference somewhere early in the show. And that's the real life version of the Baxter Brothers. Let me see if there's... There might not be. I but... don't have Hardy Boys in my notes. So... Okay. But the Hardy Boys are part of the same universe as Nancy Drew. Right. They're the parallel. Yes. They are the Baxter Brothers. That was interesting. That was something that I noted, too. I was like, why the sudden change? Everything else, I feel like it's pretty consistent. I have a list going for brand names that they make up, which include Game Lad, TGI Thursdays, Share B&B, Shabby Road Studios. 
Shabby Road Studios? Shabby really? Road Studios. Also Solstice instead of Equinox. They have Maple Claw. Like they have so many creative names for things. And then they also have literal product placements. Like they have MacBooks. They are allowed to show the Apple symbol. And that's new. And that's new. They have not always had Apple products in this show. In previous seasons, you can see product placements for an LG phone that Kevin is showing. The camera is clearly slowed when Kevin is holding up his LG phone. Enough for you to see it. But because it's an LG phone, I have no idea what kind of specific model it is because they have a thousand of them i i just assume that when it was airing the ads for this phone were going on during the commercial breaks that had to have been the case because it happened three different episodes multiple times within chapter 34 chapter 28 29 and 34 all have close-ups of kevin pulling up different apps on that phone um talking about it even he's like oh thank god i can record this like when something was going on with like some student body president thing and they've gotten two different ads for bumble yes one from reggie and one from cheryl which is different than grindem we do not have the product placement for grinder but we do have it for bumble Mm -hmm. um and we also have it in a gay way for bumble because cheryl was like oh she's pretty she was swiping on girls reggie was swiping on girls as well but in a straight way Mm -hmm. because he's a man yes um uber is also a product a brand that was listed by name was it i have season three episode 20 and then we have minecraft i don't like jelly bean said uber wow i wrote down uber well i i must have not noticed it um they even do product placements for other shows like for example they did a product placement for Katie Keene. Chapter 69, Veronica's entire plot that episode was just advertising Katie Keene's new show. Both the character and the name of the show and also what some of the plot was. K.O. Kelly, her boyfriend. Like We had a whole ad for Love, Simon. Like the entire episode was like lonely gay couples meeting up and befriending each other at the Love, Simon premiere. <laughs> That's how Shoni got together. That's true. There's also the ad for Watch What Happens Live mm-hmm. in season two, episode six. The Andy Cohen show. The Andy Cohen show. Because Andy they Cohen say his was name present. by name. Yeah. And they do sometimes change celebrity names. Right? The Iowa conference recruiter that calls Jughead, D- yeah. Dina Letham instead Dina of Lena Letham. Dunham. They, they, did, they couldn't get Lena Dunham, who desperately needs publicity. Who is friends with Ras, by the way. Uh, that paints a different image or they're at least acquainted they're acquainted they're from the same world but they could get andy cohen by name um they also name dropped jonas brothers and euphoria that's true they they name drop tv shows and movies and books all the time though but to name drop a band to name drop a band is unusual that was i feel like when they were reuniting Oh yeah, was that the sucker for you era? It was close to it. It was yeah. close to it. It was it was overlapping. Wow. Um what was your favorite fake brand from this season? Ooh. Let me look at my list. <laughs> there were quite a few. I really liked all of the ones from chapter 65. Miss Burble specifically was really great with the fake names. 
she offered candy to a lot of her patients, including Skit Scat, Three Buccaneers, and Butterflingers. Three Buccaneers took me a minute. I did not understand it until I wrote it down that it was supposed to be the Four Musketeers. Three Musketeers. Three Musketeers. <laughs> they just changed Buccaneers. <laughs> You're right. I wrote Four Musketeers. That's embarrassing. <laughs> oh, my God. What about yours? What was your favorite from this season? I am emotionally attached to Skit Scat, but I'm also really confused about Maple Claw. Because to me, Maple Claw is the product that Veronica and Cheryl start selling to the college kids. And I thought Maple Claw was a take on White Claw. Is it not? Well, it presumably is. But when you see the bottle, it looks like Fireball, which also rhymes kind of with Maple Claw. So I'm just confused a little bit if it's Fireball or if it's Maple Claw. Like, it's not a seltzer. It's like like a bottle of liquor hmm. but i'm gonna say maple claw for that reason i just wanted to bring it up some honorable mentions because i really fucking love them tucci instead of gucci <laughs> um and little cicero's instead of little caesar's <laughs> um those were great but i think butterflinger really got me because she said it so smoothly. Miss Burble was like, Butterflinger? It sounded like she said Butterfinger. Um, anyway, is there anything else that you wanted to address? So, our less sexy body count updates for our murderers this season. George Augustine's son gains one. He killed Fred. I don't know if Jonathan is dead. But if he is, Donna probably killed him. But she is really good at staying out of it. That was another reason why she was my HBIC, was because in the frame, in the attempted murder of Jughead, she got everyone else to do the dirty work. And when the FBI was interrogating her, she was like, do you have any evidence? And they were like, well, no, but... And she's like, okay, then I'm leaving. Like, she literally walked away because they had nothing to prove that she did it okay valid so donna is one question mark i haven't verified that jonathan is dead betty talks about him not being there Mm -hmm. and donna claims that he has food poisoning and we don't get any update we just move on from that joan gets one for being the rock holder Mm -hmm. and hitting jughead on the back of the head he did technically die Mm -hmm. for a little bit And though he likes to pretend that he's the only one who's died and been revived, we have to remember that Alice has also done this. Yes, for the farm, for the FBI's sake. She also had CPR done by Betty. That Mm -hmm. saved her. So Betty's life-saving count. Yes, Betty gets a double life-saving count. Mr. Chipping won for a mystery student. One of the Stonewall Four. Mr. DuPont, three, for killing... Charles Chickens in 1994, Jane Dallas Brown in 1978, and Theodore Weisel? Weisel. Weisel? Yeah. I put Geisel, which is the real name. <laughs> Weisel. <laughs> Theodore <2002>. Weisel. <laughs> Supposedly. <laughs> Charles W. Chickens. The W. Mm-hmm. It's like George W. <laughs> Charles W. 
we have some new killers in the rankings. Betty got her first count for killing Caramel with a rock. Side note, I thought it was funny that she killed Caramel with a stone and also thought maybe she killed Jughead with a stone mm -hmm. and that the school is called Stonewall. Mm. And they're called Stonies. And also at Stonewall, the riot bricks were thrown at people. Right. Something to think about, but maybe not. <laughs> Another new killer, Tony. She got one for killing Uncle Bedford. Justified, but still a murder. Alice, also a new murder. She shot Edgar before he could go into his little evil Knievel rocket. <laughs> I thought he looked like Elvis. <laughs> Potato, potato. <laughs> All right, defiling dead bodies count. Uh, Hermione has a question mark because what happened to the sheriff that had a body double? <laughs> Presumably, she definitely defiled and disposed of the body of the real Sheriff Mineta, though, after killing him. Mm -hmm. Sister Woodhouse is still... Our number one serial killer. Of course. <laughs> FP has defiled four bodies. He moved Shady Man twice. Mm -hmm. He got rid of Tallboy and Jason in season one. Joaquin is still at one from season one. Alice and Betty are still at one. Sweet, and pa Sweet Pea and Fangs are still at one. Jughead is at one for his involvement with Tallboy. Charles is at one for the person that maybe he killed with Chick. No, he's at two. He's at two? He also helped FP move the shady man. <gasps> You're right. Charles is at two. That he's we getting know up there. Of. We know things come out about him later, but this is all that has been currently confirmed. Cheryl has two times a thousand. <laughs> yeah. For Jason... All of the little things involving Jason and Uncle Bedford, mm -hmm. Tony as well, and Edgar has one for exhuming Jason in the first place. I'm sure he also did that for other people's dead loved ones, but that's the only one that was confirmed. True. I assume he dealt with a lot of bodies, being an organ harvester and all. Mm -hmm. So those are my updated relevant counters. Okay. Um, my counter, I only have the one. The counter to your counter. The counter to your counter <laughs> is um, defenestrations, which is, of course, busting through a window, both lethal and non-lethal defenestrations. We still have Polly's non-lethal defenestration escape from the Sisters of Quiet Mercy in season one. The second defenestration was Ben Button was lethal. He jumped out his window of the hospital the third defenestration was non-lethal but it was also a twofer it was kurtz and jughead i would also consider that an attempted murder from kurtz on jughead at the shady apartment complex raid in season three the two from this season so the fourth and the fifth defenestrations were both lethal they both happened in the same room of the same building in the same window on a wall of windows it's almost like they only had one window with sugar glass 
<laughs> the first of this season was Mr. Chipping. He was in the middle of a lecture about moral integrity. And then he said, I'm sorry, Jughead. I couldn't help you. And then he jumps out the window to his death. The fifth and final defenestration of the season, possibly the series. Who knows? There may be one to come in five and six. I might write one into season seven. (laughs) Nobody knows yet. Um, Was the defenestration of Francis DuPont. It was lethal. He was about to give a lecture on crime and punishment by Fyodor Dostoevsky. And the FBI came in and were about to arrest him. They were reading him his rights. And he said, fuck that. I'm out. Jumped out just like Mr. Chipping did. Straight to his death. Those are the updated defenestrations. I love that. As a side note, defenestrations are obviously a trope of Riverdale. Mm -hmm. A second trope I've noticed is ending conflicts by hitting someone on the back of the head. (laughs) Yeah. This happens in pretty much every fight scene. Every fight scene that is like presumably going to end in the death of a main character, especially. Like when Mm -hmm. Jughead was being chased down by, by Brett on Thanksgiving... Betty hit him in the back of the head with a, a golf club. <laughs> she also hit her dad in the back of the head twice as mm-hmm. the black hood. Someone did it to the mercenary trying to kill Archie. Frank did it to the mercenary trying to kill Archie. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Poor Kevin was just a bystander of that situation. His reaction was so good. My Oscar nomination of the season goes to Kevin for his performance in a mercenary showed up to kill my classmate and I'm in high school. Speaking of Kevin, we haven't talked about the tickle porn in season four. It's not porn technically because nobody (laughs) takes off their clothes according to Kevin and Fangs. That's what they keep saying. They say it's perfectly illegal. It's non-sexual, fully consented to tickling. There's this moment within the tickle porn industry as they're recruiting more and more members and Reggie suggests that they just take out the middleman, run their own tickle porn business. I was thinking like a entrepreneur, that Reggie, that yes. Reginald. And Terry shows up. Terry is the tickle porn kingpin. He is on Grindem recruiting members, pretending to be gay even. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And there's a point where Terry shows up for his cut of the money that he feels was stolen from him. And he meets Kevin and Pops with these two henchmen, we'll call them. And they sit on both sides of Kevin. And they take Kevin's fingers and pull them back. And Terry makes kevin promised to give him 40 percent of the profits and to never tickle again or he will break his fingers and he will have no choice but to never tickle again and that is my ko moment of the season <laughs> K-O. speaking of reggie though he's turned into a gay ally this season he kind of has and before wasn't he like homophobic i literally wrote in my notes he might as well have said the f slur in season one yeah (laughs) (laughs) i'm pretty sure he was calling people stuff at least like homo 
maybe not that we ever saw but we know we don't have to be we can we could read between the lines and then he's suddenly okay with tickling other men on camera for money mm-hmm. and for showing up to school in full drag out of nowhere out of nowhere it's like he befriended kevin and was like oh you're just a guy you like men but you're just a guy he was really protective of kevin too yeah. when terry started coming around he was ready to like do some murder he was to, in defense of kevin which is like kind of sweet reggie's come a long way he has <laughs> i think that's everything i want to say do you have anything else um i think there was one more serious plot structure thing okay that i've noticed this was the first season and maybe they did this editing because they got cut short and they had to like reframe what the long-term mystery was going to be but this is the first season so far that they've done consistently like jump cuts to the future at the end of episodes you know that maybe happened like once or twice before but they were like slowly unveiling the Jughead murder plot and were trying to like misdirect us on it. And I thought that was interesting to note. Another thing that I didn't notice in the past was I think because the plots are getting more dense and more convoluted and more separated from each other, they are giving us a higher frequency of timestamps. Like right at the beginning of the season, it starts off with the memorial episode in the summer and then right around the 4th of July. Um, there's a lot of holiday mentions. So then we have like the Halloween episode a few episodes later. Then there's the Thanksgiving episode a couple episodes later. And then we kind of get this series of like tumbling episodes leading up to the murder or attempted murder of Jughead. Um, and the Ides of March is like a big timestamp as, as well. So we just get like a lot of like time markers that help clarify like where different plots are in their development that we didn't have before you know i feel like all of season one could have happened in the winter time you're right yeah this is definitely kind of a transition into containing an entire year within a season when Mm -hmm. before you're right it was more contained within winter and fall yeah it's like we just assumed the rest of the school year went by normally or it was season one was like the fall winter season two is like the spring summer three was maybe more of a whole year and season four was the whole year again but we had more like more classic time markers than what we've had in the past and I think that's something to look forward to in coming seasons just because like things will get a lot more dense and convoluted it's gonna be (laughs) a little hard to separate what the fuck is going on unless you're in it like we are if you were just a casual watcher without those time markers you'd be like when is this? Where is this? Why is this all happening? You need to have some sort of passage of time context to make sense of things if you're more casual than we are. Of course, we don't have any issues, but and, except for when they have big plot holes. But yeah, those are the other things that I wanted to bring up because it's so easy for plots to get lost. That brings me to another important point. I find it funny what things the show expects us to remember, but drops off constantly. Mm -hmm. Like the voyeur plot gets lost a lot. The Black Hood plot got lost for a lot of episodes in season two. Mm -hmm. Chick disappeared all of season three and then appeared in the finale of season three. And he's been gone in all of... Well, he appeared in the beginning of season 
four and was probably supposed to come back in the end again, but we're not seeing him until next season. Right. We're supposed to remember all these characters exist, but not so much that we aren't surprised by their rearrival. Right. And simultaneously, we kind of get reminded excessively of certain things that I don't feel we really need to be reminded of. Did you know that I survived a bear attack? Yes, the bear (laughs) attack, the Betty and Archie child proposal. Mm -hmm. I feel like it's told to us a million times. The whole Betty Archie thing was, it was drawing on the exact same reasons that Betty was attracted to him in season one. It just felt kind of out of nowhere. What do you mean? Like the child proposal, like the homecoming dance, teaching Archie to read in the first grade. Trying to get him to graduate in senior year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think to some degree, that's probably just to maintain some semblance of innocence in the characters and like, you know, give us like a sense of nostalgia for their childhoods and like maybe as viewers, we're expected to have all been readers of the comics and like, you know, harken back to simpler eras. And I think that's what a lot of the Barchi appeal is. It's like a hearkening back to something simpler. Um, but yeah, I have a lot of opinions on the pairings. Mm. Um, and I don't want to reveal too much at this point in time. We still have two more seasons. I want to see how things are developed before I solidify my opinions. But I think I already... I kind of have been fairly certain of my endgame couplings from the beginning. Okay. At least since season two. Is that your season seven snippet sneak peek? I think my season seven sneak peek snippet is endgame couplings and serial killer genes. Ooh. I have a lot of thoughts about these two things, and I've written about them extensively in my um, Thoughts and Revelations notes. Okay. What is your sort of season seven snippet? My season seven snippet is going to be... I've been thinking a lot about alternate universes and how to transport between them Mm. and i'll leave it at that okay interesting so last but certainly not least what is your riverdale binge note word doc mine is titled riverdale binge notes what is the word count because that's the only fair way. You always judge me uh, having <laughs> the most pages because currently I'm at 151 pages. However, I think I have a different organizational system that spaces things out more. So what's your word count? Okay, yes. Off mic, we realized that actually I have been writing more. And because I have more of a stream of consciousness disorganized note style that it takes up fewer pages my current word count is 57,477 <laughs> but I'm only at 95 pages so the divide grows I was having a hard time holding back in concise note-taking this season and my word count is 54,263 words You have 3,000 more words than I do. It doesn't seem like that much more. That's an essay. My word count for this podcast, this season's podcast, is (sighs) 1,095. 
I did not think to do it for this. Let's see. <laughs> my notes for my rerun season four notes only contain 728 words. Wow. Okay. I abbreviate a lot of things, though. Fair enough. Thank you for doing this pod with me. Thank you for doing it with me. This has been the light of my life. Literally <laughs> my reason for going on. <laughs> I love you. I love you. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Special thanks to Ben Chatwin for the iconic intro music. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to leave us a review and follow us at Riverdale Writers Pod on all social platforms. If you are at all involved with the production of Riverdale, or you just want to say hi, email us at RiverdaleWritersPod at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. TTFN!